Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. I'm Bill Waskell of the Volcker Alliance. I'm here with Susan Walker, co-director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. And we want to welcome you to our September edition of Special Briefing. We do have a very special program for you today. We'll be looking at fiscal and operational priorities for cities in the COVID crisis era. There are fiscal implications, of course, as well as how cities are dealing with both the fiscal shock of coronavirus, COVID-19, and the calls for greater social justice, social equity, infrastructure. There's a, a list of management needs about as as long as my arm and leg put together. We're going to mull all over that today. I'll introduce the panel in a second. First, a couple of just brief housekeeping details. This is coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and IUR websites as a co-production. You can also find all of our past special briefings on both websites, as well as supplemental material. There'll be some supplemental material from today's event posted to both sites, reports that we we're going to be referring to and discussing charts and whatnot. We encourage you to, to go there and spend, spend some time there. And a couple of housekeeping details. We've gotten a bunch of questions from audience members in advance, so we're going to be going over them. Afterwards, if you'd like to email any of us, contact information will be up on the screen and up on the archive version on both websites. So why don't we move on to the wonderful and I hope very constructive program that we have today, very constructive considering today is the day that the Senate is going to vote on its version of a coronavirus relief bill, which doesn't appear to be going anywhere. But maybe this is the starting point for further negotiations as we approach a government shutdown deadline. Along with uh, Susan and me today, we'll be hearing from Andy Rashofsky, uh, who Susan will introduce further. Andy is at the uh, the Lafayette School at University of Wisconsin. Bill Lucia from Route 50, uh, which has just done a terrific new survey of municipal leaders. Andrew Ryan of the Citizens Budget Commission, who watches New York City and New York State like a hawk and has some interesting strategy recommendations for the city. And uh, finally, Linda Vilms from the JFK School at Harvard. Linda is a budgeting expert and works with many cities, large and small, on budget strategies and is going to talk about just that, how to translate all these numbers into action. So without further ado, Susan, please uh, take the mic and we'll move on to Susan and Andy. Thank you very much, Bill, and welcome to all. We are very pleased to have with us our distinguished panelists. And let us begin with Andy Rashofsky. And Andy is a professor of applied economics and public affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and co-author of a terrific new study, The Fiscal Effects of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Cities. And it is the first such study we have for 150 cities across the United States. It was featured in the New York Times and appears in the September issue, current issue of the National Tax Journal. The study estimates fiscal year 2021 revenue shortfalls in these 150 cities and also including their share of school district and county expenditures. So we really have a sense of which cities are most distressed COVID-19's challenges. The abstract of the study is posted to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites and the data as well. Andy, please tell us about the projected city revenue shortfalls and explain your best and worst cases. Which cities are most affected and why? Thank you, Susan. In our recently published article, my co-authors Howard Chernick, David Copeland, and I looked at, as Susan said, the COVID-19 pandemic on 150 large American central cities. In our paper, we spent some time discussing the extra spending and extra costs that cities are facing due to the pandemic. Again, as Susan mentioned, our primary focus was to estimate revenue shortfalls central city governments are likely to face in fiscal 21, the current fiscal year. Based on past trends, we estimated each city's fiscal 21 revenue as if there had been no pandemic, no COVID-19. We then estimate for each source of city revenue, the likely revenue declines due to COVID-19 and the resulting recession. 
before um, sharing my results, let me just say a word about the data. Across the country, cities have very different governmental structures. So doing comparisons is difficult. To deal with that problem, we have constructed what we call fiscally standardized cities. The data, which can be found on the website of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, combines revenue data from each central city's municipal government with a prorated share of revenues from all overlying governments, school districts, counties, and special districts. Fiscally standardized cities thus reflect the total revenues raised on behalf of central city residents and businesses. For each city, we looked at its unique mix of revenue sources, various local taxes, user fees, miscellaneous local revenues, and grants from both the state and federal government, and then estimated the percentage reduction in each source of revenue due to the pandemic. Because there's so much uncertainty about the course of the pandemic and the policy responses to it, we estimated revenue shortfalls under two assumptions, two scenarios, which we refer to as less severe and more severe. Now let me summarize the results. On average, our 150 fiscally standardized cities will face revenue shortfalls between five and a half and nine percent. In dollar terms, these percentage shortfalls translate into reductions in fiscal 21 revenue of between 34 and 55 billion dollars. A rough scaling up of these estimates to all local governments in the entire United States suggests revenue shortfalls this fiscal year of 103 to $165 billion. Not surprisingly, there's a great deal of variation across cities in our projected revenue shortfalls. On the map that's on your screen, each city is represented by a circle with larger cities having larger dimension circles. The cities with orange and red circles will face larger percentage shortfalls under our more severe assumption than cities colored in blue. Differences in the magnitude of revenue shortfalls across cities reflect the differences in the mix of revenue sources, differences in the incidence of COVID-19, and in the severity of the recession. And as can be seen by looking at the map, there's no distinct regional pattern. Also, despite comments by President Trump, there's no clear partisan divide. Cities facing above average revenue shortfalls can be found in both red and blue states. Understand why some central cities will face much larger revenue shortfalls than other cities. I'll give a couple or a few specific examples. I'll start with Rochester, New York, where we project revenue shortfall between 14 and 20 percent, a shortfall larger than in any other city. The single most important reason that Rochester will face such a large shortfall is its heavy reliance on state aid. Rochester gets nearly half of its revenue from state aid almost double the state aid share in the average city. And we project that state aid in New York will be cut by between 21 and 27%. Again, nearly twice the average across all cities. Let me add that our state aid projections are predicated on the assumption that state governments will respond to their own budget shortfalls by cutting spending rather than raising taxes. That would follow the pattern that we observed during the first year of the 2007-2009 Great Recession. A second reason that Rochester will face large revenue shortfalls is that compared to the average central city, it relies on the local sales tax for an above average share of its tax revenue in the fiscally standardized city. The reduction in sales tax revenue vary across cities depending upon the industry mix of their economies. Cities relying heavily on tourism, for example, will be particularly hard hit. Other cities where reliance on local sales tax contributes substantially to overall revenue shortfalls include Chicago, New Orleans, Charleston, North, South Carolina, and Seattle. In contrast to Rochester, we project that Boston, Massachusetts will face a relatively small revenue shortfall, between 2 and 4%. The most important reason is Boston's heavy reliance on the property tax. Boston gets over half of its general revenue and 90% of its tax revenue from the property tax. Compare this to Philadelphia, which gets only 26% of its tax revenue from the property tax. Every reliance on the property tax is important because we project that property tax revenues will either not decline at all or at most decline by one half or 1% this fiscal year. Let, let me briefly explain that. Even if falling demand for downtown office space and central city living result in lower property values, and that really is still an open question, 
lower market values won't be reflected in lower assessed values of property in this fiscal year. There's a lot of empirical evidence, most of it coming from analysis of the Great Recession, that because of the way the property tax is administered, it takes about three years for reductions in housing prices, for example, to be reflected in lower property tax revenues. The bottom line is that cities such as Boston that rely heavily on the property tax will be largely protected from revenue declines this fiscal year. However, if central city property values do in fact decline, cities will suffer revenue shortfalls two or three years from now, hopefully long after COVID-19 has been vanquished. The pandemic, however, might have a long fiscal shadow. Primarily through the CARES Act, the federal government provided about $180 billion to state and local governments. Most of these funds, however, are restricted for use in funding direct COVID-19 related expenses. To date, the federal government, is, as you probably know, has provided no funding to replace revenue shortfalls of both state and local governments. Let me conclude by saying that although the exact path of COVID-19 pandemic and the economic recovery are obviously unknown, there is little question that public services in central cities, to say nothing about central city economies, will suffer substantially if Congress and the administration cannot agree on adequate additional federal relief targeted explicitly to state and local governments. Thank you very much, Andy, for this extremely valuable work. It is a major contribution. As Bill mentioned before, and you mentioned as well, the abstract of the study and the data will be on the Voker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. We now turn to Bill Lucia, who is a senior reporter for Route 50. And Bill collaborated on another study, which is on, so facing these challenges, what are officials going to do? The study, Local Government's Next Normal, is a survey of 368 local and county officials on their managerial priorities in response to this crisis. Once again, the report will be posted on our websites. Bill? Thank you, Susan. So for those not familiar, Route 50, we've been around about five years now and we cover state and local government affairs. Our coverage is generally geared toward readers who work in or with state and local governments. And so the survey here, it was conducted in July. As mentioned, it includes responses from close to 400. It was mostly local government officials and staff. There were some state officials who, who responded as well. And the goal was to gain some insight into how priorities were going to shift and what difficulties were emerging as the pandemic was straining local government budgets. And so part of the results that I found interesting and that I wrote about had to do with changing priorities around infrastructure and capital spending. And there were sort of three key takeaways that I found notable here. One was just over 60% of respondents said that capital projects would be the budget item most impacted by revenue shortfalls stemming from the coronavirus among people in leadership positions, the percentage of respondents who said so was even higher, it was close to 70%. Second, looking back six months, about half of those survey respondents, they said that facilities maintenance was one of their organization's top three priorities at that time. But looking ahead a year from now, only 28% predicted that it would be a top priority at that point. And lastly, nearly a third of respondents said that public works was an area where they expected there to be workforce cuts, so layoffs, furloughs, or eliminating positions through attrition. That last finding about public works jobs, that comes in the context of the most recent state and local government employment figures that came out last week from the Labor Department. And those showed that in August, despite some gains at the local level, there were still about a million fewer state and local government jobs in August compared to August of last year. So for the article about the survey to get some on the ground perspective, I talked to a public works manager in Oakland Park, Florida. This is a city of about 45,000 people near Fort Lauderdale. And he described how some of the trends that were showing up in the survey, how those were playing on the ground there in his, in his city. So for instance, he said his department, they have about 80 workers. They oversee things like local sewers, garbage collection, parks, things along those lines. And he talked a little bit about how, you know, his department's putting off projects like bathroom upgrades and playground improvements at parks. His department staff, they've had their hours cut back, a mandatory hour and pay cutback of one day every two weeks. And he said that was starting to create some difficulties with fleet maintenance, uh, with mechanics keeping up maintaining the fleet. Looking ahead, he's concerned about the likely hit to gas tax revenue and how that's going to play out with when it comes to street funding over the next couple of years. 
And the situation in Florida, it's not unique. I mean, you see, for example, if you look to Wyoming in late August, the governor there, he finalized a round of $150 million in budget cuts. And in addition, there were $80 million in cuts to spending for maintenance of uh, state buildings and buildings on college and university campuses. And then earlier in the summer, you saw in Florida, you know, there were news reports there about how the governor had vetoed $2 million of spending that would have gone to create a modernization master plan for state prison facilities, many of which have outdated air conditioning and other systems. You know, so another example there of sort of putting off facilities maintenance spending. And there are also some new questions about emerging about funding for California's high-speed rail project due to pandemic-related budget pressures. Now, on the topic of facilities, we actually we had a great article yesterday from our columnists, Catherine Barrett and Richard Green, about governments actually downsizing their office space. So they reported before the end of the year, the Nebraska Department of Administrative Services, for instance, that they were going to move from three floors in an office building they have down to one floor. So reducing their office space by about 30,000 square feet to 17,000 square feet. In a way, you know, doing away with facilities, maintenance costs by downsizing facilities. And lastly, I'll just mention that the public works manager down in Florida, I mean, he pointed out that if new federal infrastructure money were to flow to the city, he has pending waterworks projects that could be lined up and ready to go quite quickly. You would be able to put contractors to work on those. And, you know, of course, if you talk to state and local officials around the country, there's, they'll tell you there's no shortage of water, wastewater, and other infrastructure projects that are in need of being done. For now, I'll leave it at that. And yeah, looking forward to the question and answer. Thank you very much. Very useful study, Bill. We now turn to Bill Glasgow, who will introduce our next two speakers, and we'll drill down on policy responses for New York, which is one of our most challenged cities, and more generally, how should cities respond? Bill, off to you. Thanks very much, Susan. And I want to remind you all, you're listening to Special Briefing on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. This is a co-production of the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. It's a very exciting collaboration. Watch for more on this subject later. Just one comment on what Bill just said. The Volcker Alliance estimated last fall that the United States has about $800 billion in state and local deferred maintenance piled up already, which is about four times what the federal government admits to having in their annual treasury reports. This is already a, a very pressing issue and something that we need to watch very closely because the more our facilities, roads, bridges, jails, schools, water plants, the, the more they deteriorate, the less able we are to have a fully functioning modern economy when things do recover. So stay tuned. This is really going to be a, a very critical area. So why don't we turn, as, as Susan mentioned, to New York City. Andrew Ryan runs the Citizens Budget Commission of New York. It's the leading independent voice of analysis and criticism of New York City and New York State strategies and numbers. Their reports are very rich and always very useful. Andrew comes to the CBC from experience in New York health and hospitals, so he's, he's seen it from inside and from outside. And he's, as I mentioned earlier, he's got some very interesting strategies on how New York conceivably could get out of its hole without going either deeply into debt or getting rid of 22,000 public workers, as Mayor de Blasio has threatened. So, uh, Andrew, please, it's all yours. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, you know, Volker and, and Penn for uh, sponsoring this. I confess to thinking that local fiscal challenges and solutions are so important, but get short shrift. And for you guys to highlight this is really important, timely, and to be on such a distinguished panel is an, an honor. As I talk about New York strategies and what I think are some better alternatives, I would like people to keep in mind that this is not just a spreadsheet exercise. And by that, usually, I mean, there are people's lives that hang in the balance. But now, today, I want to emphasize that this is about leadership and management. Leadership, making the hard choices and bringing the constituencies to the table and together committed to making progress. And that is labor, business, social services, we really need everyone to come together for the long term. That's what leadership is and management to implement. We all look for best practices, but frankly, if not managed well, held accountable, tossed out the window if they fail, these best practices will again be on the spreadsheet or in the re report and they will not be replicated or scalable. So thinking about the leadership management, not just each individual occurrence of what happens in New York or other jurisdictions, it's about implementation on the ground. So New York faces, I would argue, its, its biggest fiscal crisis in generations since the 70s. Now, I will say, 
you can look at the numbers and the out years aren't necessarily as bad as they look, except all the risk is on the downside. The economy, the state fiscal cuts, uh, that Professor Rosowski talked about, not only now, but in the future, and certainly spending that won't be reimbursed by the federal government. Think about COVID direct response, where you might have a 25% federal match, but also COVID related. If you're running schools half remotely, it's gonna cost you money, and so that's also a fiscal risk. So there's biggest fiscal crisis in generation. Our tax revenue loss over 16 months is estimated at $9 billion. Add another three years to that, four years plus, it's $19 billion on the tax revenue side. Add to that, as I said, the state revenue loss and the spending, we have some significant fiscal challenges now. And in the future, they always, recessions are always three-year phenomena in local government, generally at least. We're better positioned than in the 70s. We have legal structures to manage the budget, better gap balance, four-year financial plans, quarterly updates. So we're structured better, but we really did in New York squander a good chunk of the recovery to prepare for this recession. We built our tax revenues base um, was very strong, built up a lot of resources. We shortchanged reserves and grew government. So we put around $6 billion into reserves. We probably should have doubled that. And we increased the size of government around $20 billion during this administration. And importantly, we added 29,000 full-time equivalent employees. That puts us, just to perspective, that 29,000 after the last recession puts us 15,000 above where we were at the peak before the the last recession. So we know that there's room to come down, but it's also hard to turn that battleship around when you've increased the size of government consistently because we have been in an additive time. Policies and programs have been adding to government rather than finding efficiencies or savings elsewhere to substitute and fund that. So we come in worse prepared than we needed to. And now how has New York responded? New York has responded with a short-term strategy that potentially addresses the short-term problem, but is also short-sighted in not addressing the long-term problem. We adopted a balanced budget as required by law for the current fiscal year. Remember, I said we had that $9 billion shortfall. The city used $4 billion in those reserves, reasonable to do, a couple of billion in federal aid, reasonable to do, and $4 billion in savings. The challenge here is that a chunk of that savings program and the reserves of the federal aid are one time, and if you're using one-time resources to fill your budget hole, then you, without being a pathway to stability in the long run, you're really just propping up under affordable spending, and it's a short-sighted, short-term strategy. And as I've said, you know, the, your budget gaps might look manageable, but the risks are real. Let's get to the um, city's short-term actions just to flesh that out a little. $1.3 billion of that $4 billion savings program was non-recurring because, in large part, there are things we weren't doing because of COVID. We have a subsidized MetroCard program for riding subways for people of lower income. If no one's riding the subways, you save $65 million. If you're not running summer school and busing for summer school, you're saving $400 million. Those are real resources, but they don't help you in the long run. So few portions of that savings program were efficiencies. Only 1% of the city budget was efficiencies in that. And that's really the rub. If you're going to have a bridge and not a prop, we need to increase the efficiency of government. And the last linchpin in this was $1 billion of savings that the mayor said he was going to negotiate with labor and come up with savings on a recurring basis. The problem was it was unspecified and 70 days later, undelivered. So now we're in this period where we, we have a budget that is a billion dollars out of whack according to the mayor. And this is where, as I said, the leadership and political strategy and budgeting comes in. The focus has been, for that billion and others to get aid from Washington, well-deserved, not forthcoming, or get authorization to borrow, which has long-term negative implications, rather than bringing labor to the table to be a partner in identifying the savings. And we think that that can happen and should happen. And I'll just outline a couple of our options that we think that billion dollars can be saved with some unilaterally, some with labor. Let's identify a couple of categories and, and specifics. On the efficiency and operations, we believe that you can centralize procurement in, in New York City and save $80 million. You can use overtime caps for skilled trade and uniformed employees who earn $360 million in overtime above and beyond maybe a reasonable 15% of overtime that is, is reasonable. So instituting overtime caps, you can do that unilaterally. But other savings and efficiencies, you need to work with labor. 
we actually in New York City, most fire engines have four firefighters per company, but some still have five based on a labor negotiation. Let's make them all four, save money there. Our sanitation routes are negotiated with our labor union. We could lengthen those routes and be more efficient. We can save money there. So some efficiencies are on our own, some efficiencies with labor. Then there is a set of benefit rationalization proposals and efficiencies that we put forward. New York City has a non-contributory option for health insurance for its employees, and almost all employees take that. That is not standard for government, not standard for the private sector, where people are paying you know, 10, 15, 20% for individual and family coverage. We actually put together a proposal, and you can actually package it different ways. We decided that lower wage employees should contribute less, higher earning employees could contribute more. We put together a package that was still significantly less than private sector contributions, less than New York State's contributions, but that could save the city 700 million annually. We also think retiree health benefits are very generous, their savings equivalent there. And then we have in New York City, 73 different union welfare benefit funds. Funds are given to the city each year per employee to 73 different benefit funds that each run its own, their own benefit program, which is an inefficient way to do this. In fact, we estimated that if you consolidate those funds, administrative savings and purchasing power can save you $164 million a year. So benefit rationalization and efficiency, these are just two examples. And furthermore, as I mentioned, we've grown the workforce. Now, the mayor has actually talked about if we don't get this billion savings, we need to lay off 22,000 workers or we need to borrow money. We think that's a false choice. And if you want to reduce the workforce, you can do it through attrition over time. And in fact, 20,000 employees leave city service each year. If you didn't hire back 10,000 of those, half of those in a year, you'd save on an annual basis $1 billion. And then of course, I'll leave this to discussion if people want to talk, there can be a tax component, which is very difficult in our current environment. And we think that using these alternative strategies, is better than laying off 22,000 people that the mayor's talked about or borrowing, which has long-term implications on spending on future budgets, locking up future budgets, hurting New York's future competitiveness. So I'll stop there and leave anything else to the uh, Q&A. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. That's a very stark choice for the mayor. I hope uh, we can return to this during Q&A. And then the bigger question that I, I hope we can deal with is what are the implications for other cities in where New York goes? I realize that if you know one state, you know one state. And if you know one city, you know one city. But there are certain common threads and New York being the biggest city, perhaps there are lessons to be learned. And speaking of lessons, we're going to move on to our last speaker today, Lynn Wilms from the JFK School at, at Harvard, who has been very, very kind uh, and given us lots of suggestions on panelists and ideas that we should take up. And this seems to be a, pr a perfect time to look at strategies, as Andrew just did. How can mayors and city councils and city managers navigate this minefield of sharply lower revenues in some cases, or maybe sharply lower revenues ahead, calls for defunding the police, calls for, for social equity. Everybody wants to keep their job. Everybody wants to keep their service, have their garbage collected, uh, have their, their streets plowed, all the things that mayors do. It's no coincidence that in every survey of trust in government that I've seen, the least trust is at the federal level, the second least trust is at the state level, and people really do trust their local governments because that's where they touch government every day. So, Linda, Professor Bill, uh, please tell us about your ideas for budgeting and strategies. So, thank you, Bill. So, as we've heard, cities face a huge revenue shortfall and they face higher expenses and their particular circumstances vary a lot depending on their capacity and their mix of revenue streams. I work with dozens of mayors and city managers through two programs at Harvard, and I'm going to very briefly discuss what will cities do and what can cities do. As we've heard, without any intervention or, or significant federal aid, cities are going to be cutting capital spending, especially by deferring maintenance and postponing infrastructure projects. They will continue to cut operating spending, and since most city 
expenses related to people, that means continued layoffs, furloughs, hiring freezes, and uh, service cuts. And they may try to raise revenues, but of course, most of the typical sources of revenues, such as tolls, traffic fines, construction permits, sales taxes, etc., are not going to produce much revenue in the current circumstances. Moreover, these actions would smother another economic recovery, as we all saw the effect of austerity in Europe after 2008. And most of the mayors are well informed on this issue and understand this. So they are asking us how can they minimize cuts and at least make strategic budget cuts. Let me mention three points. One of the main challenges that mayors face is that most cities have very basic line item budgets. This means that the budget is laid out by department and showing line items like salaries and purchases. And this makes it very difficult for them to prioritize spending or to cut strategically. The best run cities that I'm working with are trying to quickly convert at least key portions of their budgets into activity-based budgets. This means reframing the budget so it shows where money is spent within each department with the activities usually defined as services that the resident receives, for example, trash being picked up. Let me explain why this concept is useful. If a city doesn't have an activity budgets, typically the mayor would ask each department to propose budget cuts of say five or 10% in the current environment. And typically the department is going to respond by offering up what that department thinks is the least important priority or choosing the biggest line item or using the Washington Monument strategy to pick the line item that's most guaranteed to generate public opposition. None of those options are gonna be ideal, but from the perspective of the mayor or the city manager, if they use the activity-based approach instead of asking for an across-the-board cut, they can ask each department to lay out all of the major activities in each department with the approximate amount of the budget devoted to each one. That means, for example, that the library budget would be divided into programs for seniors, for children, for book purchases, for technologies, and for English as a second language, as well as overhead costs like rent. This enables the city to be more strategic in reducing spending. So, for example, in one city I work with, the library's uh, top priority for spending cuts was exactly the opposite of the mayor's. Their top priority was book acquisition, because that's what librarians do, but the mayor's top priority was ESL. But without that step, the cities can't really get visibility on their budgets. This is especially important now in terms of the discussions over police. There is a desire to shift funds to activities within the police department toward prevention and away from expenses like buying more vehicles and guns. But this is much easier if a city manager is able to see inside the police budget, including overtime in terms of where the money goes. It's also much easier to deal with unions in terms of reallocation of funds and cutting funding and for specific purposes rather than across the board. This sounds fairly straightforward, but the main impediment is that many activities involve several different departments. For example, firefighting involves a portion of the firefighting budget, but also some portions of the police, the EMT and the public works department. And so it does require some effort to get it into the right kind of condition to get that visibility. Many cities second are convening control boards of various kinds to help make politically difficult trade-offs. But again, these boards are a lot more useful if the city has the information on what different services cost to enable the control boards to actually make meaningful decisions. In addition to the activity-based costing, we are working with many cities on evaluating their contracting in each department and asking what contracts are being used for. Many cities are looking at contracts in particular as to whether they are meeting social equity goals. Are they employing local businesses, local people? Are there necessary? Are these services that city staff can do? Can the city contracts be renegotiated in terms of uh, service terms or price? A number of cities are working on um, what are called barrier audits, 
the contracting process to identify key inflection points where local and minority-owned firms get lost in the process. And these barrier audits are quite interesting because many of the findings from these barrier audits show that the places where minority and small and local owned businesses get lost in the process are not intuitively obvious. For example, we just went through a major barrier audit of, of this issue in Austin, Texas, and found that the key issue that was keeping local firms out of city contracting was that they lacked accounting expertise to fill in the forms. My third point is around the actual budgeting that cities are doing. And most small to medium-sized cities are confronting a really unusual circumstance in terms of the amount of uncertainty they have in their revenue forecasts. Now, New York City, of course, is very sophisticated and has a 77 equation econometric model to forecast its revenues. But most small to medium-sized cities forecast revenues using simple extrapolation based on historical trends. And they revise their budgets maybe one time during the year. They now have enormous amount of uncertainty and they really don't know how to develop a budget. Consequently, we have advised cities to develop two budgets, a kind of worst case scenario, as well as a moderate realistic scenario, and to use monthly variance analysis. And a lot of my students are working with a lot of cities on revamping their budget processes to be able to do this. What this means is that there's going to be a lot of fluctuation over the next year, and the budget that you see published is probably not a very good predictor of what actually happens. There's also the case that in most departments and in most cities, uh, some money is being held back for sort of emergencies, and there's probably even greater conservatism in the budgets that are being published than ever before. I will stop there, and uh, thank you very much. Look forward to the questions. Well, thank you, Linda. That's really very helpful. These are terrific strategic ideas, and that's what uh, this program is is all about. It's finding strategies that municipal and state leaders and school district leaders can use. One reminder, you're listening to Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and IUR on the Volcker Alliance and IUR websites. It is question time. We have a bunch of questions from the audience. I've collected some some additional statistics that Susan asked me to, to put together to help flesh this out. So I'm not going to waste any time talking here. I'm going to turn it back to Susan and get to what's most important, which is a discussion and your questions. And actually, Bill, I had a question which I think is raised in the background from all of today's speakers and is on, I believe, everyone's mind, certainly in the news. And it's congressional debate time. And so if we pull back for a moment on the big picture, I, I'd like to go to you, Bill, and ask uh, you for different bodies to come out with different estimates of the overall need, the overall hit to state and local budgets and over fiscal years, fiscal year 2021, those two years as opposed to fiscal year 21, 22, can you give us the big picture to help us put this all into perspective? And then we'll turn to some of the other questions. Well, you're absolutely right, Susan. And I really credit Andrew for sparking this idea in, in a conversation we had the other day. The numbers do vary because budgeting is, uh, is as Linda pointed out, it, it, a somewhat imprecise art. It's not just an accounting exercise. It's also, these are, these are political statements as well. So when we're looking at the short we, we can we can look at the revenue probably somewhat more accurately than, than we can look at the expense side to see the budget gap. Very often, a budget gap is expressed as the difference between expected revenue or projected revenue and what next year's spending will be based on uh, an inflation factor or, or a fudge factor rather than the gap based on, on historical spending. So we have to look for, for some inflation in the, the numbers. On the other hand, the, the numbers are in fairly good agreement. 
We heard earlier from uh, Andy Rashofsky on his estimate for the Lincoln Standardized Studies. Moody's Analytics just uh, really a few days ago came up with about a $500 billion state and local shortfall for fiscal 20 through 22, composed of $230 billion in state revenue losses, $82 billion in Medicaid increases, and another couple hundred billion dollars in, in municipal shortfalls. That's more or less in line with what the Tax Foundation is, is estimating. If you want to see a larger number, Tim Bardick, who has been on this program uh, from the Uptown Institute, he looked at Congressional Budget Office projections and came out with a fiscal 20 and 21 need of about $899 billion, $900 billion, made up of $644 billion in the states and $315 billion roughly for, for local budgets. There's a couple hundred billion dollars in differences here. The National League of Cities comes up with an estimate of uh, revenue shortfall of about 20% in the coming year, assuming cities balance their budgets, which they have to do, assuming that they're not balancing it entirely with reserves, their expenditures will be probably 10% lower, plus or minus, could be 15 to 20% as, as some cities are protecting. The numbers are in rough agreement, and you see this disagreement really uh, expressed in Congress where we could have a $500 billion aid package, a trillion dollar aid package, or no aid package at all, and let the cities and states fend for themselves. I'll close with the, the somewhat worrisome factor that after, according to the National League of Cities data, after the Great Recession, it took about 12 years for local revenue to recover in real terms to where it was before the recession. So the more we cut back today, I, th I think the, the slower the economic recovery will be and the, the slower state revenues and ex city and state both revenues and expenditures will be. So the, the numbers are in, in roughish agreement, and I think it's understandable that, that they should be given the, the imprecise nature of this exercise. Even Moody's has, Andy has, even Moody's has a base case and a worst case. And in the case of Moody's, if you dig into the, to the Moody's analytics number, there's a worst case, there's a worst, worst case. There's all kinds of scenarios. And that's why at the Volcker Alliance, we've really encouraged states to adopt long-term budgeting strategies, long-term forecasting strategies, very much like what Utah has done, where they do stress testing. They're constantly looking at the, the numbers to, to see if they pass the reality test. Thank you so much, Bill. We very much appreciate it, particularly your focus on the long-term and Linda's focus on the need for flexibility. But let me, before we go to some perhaps general questions for all of the panelists on those overall response issues on the part of state and localities, ask some specific questions to panelists. And here is one for you, Andy, and that is what accounts for the revenue drop in localities given the strong home price data, recovered retail sales, and personal income that has remained lofty? This is from Bedford Leiden of Loomis sales. Please help us here. What accounts for what you see? One way to think about that is, is the glass half full or half empty? And a lot of the focus, certainly in the media and maybe the financial markets, are on the month-to-month -month improvements, that sales are going up and income hasn't declined as much as anticipated. But it's important to remember that unemployment rate in the U.S. is still uh, varies in different locations with maybe uh, three or four times above what it was in February of this year before the pandemic. Lots of people aren't doing lots of things that they did before, like travel, going to restaurants. And though, although overall consumption figures are up, that doesn't necessarily translate into sales tax revenues, that people are buying food from the grocery store, staying home, they're spending money, but not spending money on things that are subject to state and local uh, sales taxation. And as I mentioned in, in my earlier remarks, the property tax, even if property values rise, they're not likely to any increase in property values now won't be reflected in this year's property tax um, revenue, which is not likely to change much. Thank you, it is very helpful. This is a question that is for all panelists, but let me start with Bill, with you on this one. The question is, 
We have seen many deferred capital programs. What will be the long-term impacts of using capital budgets to plug operational requirements? This is from Melissa Glynn of EY Parthenon. And Bill, could you just confirm that this is the major place that plan cuts appear to be in, in capital programs? And then what's the long-term impact? And we will start with you, Linda, on that. And then please uh, weigh in, Andrew and Andy. But go ahead, Bill. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, that's definitely what came across in the survey. You know, as I mentioned that, you know, capital spending is definitely what it, going to be one of the main areas targeted for um cuts or shifting funds to other parts of the budget. And I mean, yeah, I think, you know, as Bill mentioned, I mean, there's obviously this huge deferred maintenance backlog that is a problem across the country. I mean, over the past few years, I mean, ratings agencies, academics and others, I mean, you know, they've been warning that that backlog, it's building up and it's something akin to almost, you know, a deferred, or, you know, to unfunded pension liabilities. And you know, and, and I think it's also here, it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about deferred infrastructure maintenance, I mean, it's not hypothetical stuff. I mean, you know, I've reported on, you know, failing water systems in West Virginia, for instance. And I mean, that's, you know, this is infrastructure that affects people's daily quality of life. So it surely does. Thank you, Bill. So consequences, Linda, do you want to weigh in on that? Well, I think that the infrastructure issue and the issue of these budget cuts, particularly around infrastructure, is both the problem and the solution. We know that infrastructure basically equals jobs. And at a time in the country where we have historically low interest rates and where we have roads, bridges, railways, ports, airports, schools, public buildings, electrical utilities, playgrounds, water sewerages, telecoms, everything in need of repair and maintenance. And 90% of that done at the local level and paid for at the state and local level, that is where the jobs are. Even though unemployment has fallen somewhat from its absolute apex of the pandemic, the unemployment that there is has consolidated. A lot of people have abandoned looking for jobs, and a lot of the unemployment that there is is among uh, harder hit and minority communities. So investing in this uh, is the way to rebuild the local government sector. And we know from numerous economic studies that were conducted in 2008 that the multiplier for every dollar invested at the local level is between 1.2 to 1.6. So at least 20 to 60% uh, return on every dollar invested in the local level. And I think if we don't take this opportunity to rebuild the nation's infrastructure, given that that's where the jobs are, given the enormous need, given that that's money that goes directly into local communities, we're giving up this enormous opportunity that we have given interest, the, the lowness of interest rates and so forth. I mean, of course, there are many other consequences that one can imagine at the local level, including hollowed out local communities, the impact on small businesses, the impact on minority communities with services cut. And we are facing a situation where there is a huge kind of binary decision here about whether to sort of let inner cities go or to rebuild the country, in my opinion. Very useful perspective. Thank you, Linda. I'm going to ask Andy a question that your comments bring up, Linda. And then I'm going to turn to you, Andrew, for um, best practice over the country related to this. But Andy, you've looked at the recovery from the Great Recession, local state recovery from the Great Recession, and how that was prolonged. Can you comment on your thoughts about what will happen this time and how that relates to capital spending? Yes, let me start by saying that when we looked at the Great Recession and looked at the spending side, there were spending cuts in education and all the public safety, all the municipal functions, but by far the largest cuts were in the area of capital, capital expenditures. They went on for a number of years before they started climbing. And what's really striking is uh, that most of the impacts on big cities happened after the end of the official recession. That had in part to do with the nature of the housing market, but in this recession, which arguably is even larger, 
particularly given the importance of the property tax and likely fact that there are going to be declines in value in central cities. I think it's reasonable to say that three, four, five, six years from now, we will still see the fiscal impacts of this recession and the pandemic. Yes. Thank you, Andy. Andrew, you are focused on New York City, but you look across the country for best practices. Cutting capital spending, is that one of them? I think on capital, my point that I'd like to emphasize, and all the other points have been great, is not everything is equal. And we have choices to make. And some of them are hard. Capital is cheap right now. But if we can't do everything, what is the most productive? What is the most essential? And I'll just mention two things here. One is we did a study a few, uh, a couple of years ago now that we keep building more schools and we're still the same crowded you know, state that we've been for 20 years. And we realized actually if we use administrative solutions and use our space more wisely, we could reduce our school capital budget by $2.4 billion. Yes, we're in a COVID era and space is a little different, but just generally, I think it provides the example of there are alternatives. And so we can, our scarce capital dollars can go elsewhere if we actually have alternatives. So we need to think about the choices that we can make. I also in those choices want to say we haven't brought in to this discussion, our transit system, and of course, as a New Yorker, knowing that our economy depends on our subway and commuter rail system, that is where capital investment is essential to keep the economy going straight ahead. If we can't bring 5 million people around New York every day, ultimately, we're going to have real trouble getting back to where we are. So we have to prioritize, since we can't do what was $70 billion of desired work over five years, what can we do and is essential? So I, I just have to say the prioritization is key in New York and everywhere else because it's about choices these days when resources are slim. Choices and leadership. We are coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. This has been an extraordinary panel today. We thank you all. Let me turn it over to Bill to close. Thank you. Well, thank you, Susan. Thank you. Andy, Bill, Andrew, and Linda, thank you to the audience. I might just add that to Andrew's comments that it's very easy to use capital funds for operating purposes. Uh, it's been done in, in New York. It's been, certainly been done in New Jersey with New Jersey Transit. The problem is, yes, yes, it, it fills up a hole in the budget, but it leaves you further and further behind when your signals are 100 years old or your, your rubber stock is failing because it's so ancient. This is a, a habitual problem, not just of the New York area. One of the weaknesses of cash budgeting and perhaps a reason why we, we should move to gap for budgeting as New York City does down a penis see but certainly one major solution. So with that little preachy note, again, I want to thank everybody. All this, including the contact information, will be on the websites at Penn IUR and Volcker Alliance. We encourage you to continue this discussion with us and with our great panelists. And uh, I want to thank our wonderful crew besides Susan from Penn IUR. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.